comes. How appropriate for where we will be this morning in this look into the book of Revelation. For our scripture reading, I'd like for you to turn there, please, to the book of Revelation. I'm going to read two passages. May make a comment or two, though I'll try to keep that under control because we're going to be dealing with these, uh, especially this one passage in Revelation 19. You will need your Bibles this morning. A little later on, I'm going to have you turn to the book of Isaiah. So if you're a little rusty on where that is in the Bible, you may want to go ahead and get a head start. But we'll be in Isaiah 63, just briefly, but just letting you know. It's good to have the Bible in your lap before you. I know we can put scripture up on the screen and that's not a moral issue, but there is something especially valuable about having the scriptures at your fingertips and um, that's not just retro, that's good tradition and to see, see the scriptures. All right, you have your Bibles. If you will look in Revelation and chapter 14, we're gonna read a section from that. 14, and then we're going to go to 19. 14 of Revelation, beginning at verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another, and another angel came out from the altar. And the angel who, had a, who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. For its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the grape winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's approximately 175 miles and that depth is four to four and a half feet. More on that later. Now, go into the 19th chapter, please. Revelation 19, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 21. Revelation 19. The subject should be obvious, but in case it's not, this is the description of the second coming. It's not the only passage in scripture that speaks of the second coming, but it is certainly a premier, it is a flagship passage for understanding the circumstances that surround the second coming of Christ. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it 
is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who is in its presence, had in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him <clears throat> who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Kind of a mix here, isn't there? We'll pray and then we'll proceed. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you with thanksgiving, humbled by your grace that's come to us. Lord, we wouldn't be thinking and talking this way. We wouldn't be worshiping. We wouldn't be here. If you had not come to take your rightful place in our lives. Thank you, Father, because of Christ we're here. His atoning sacrifice, death for our sins, finished once for all, paid for our sins, and we have forgiveness in him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you. Father, we have some among us who are not well. We think of Nelson nursing through a new knee. And so is Randy. And Art and Nancy, not well. I believe they told me they have COVID. Oh, my. These things that do stalk us, Lord, and bring us low, humble us, remind us of our frailty, our weakness, they're really the brevity of life. Father, give them each courage and encouragement. And for those who are here, Lord, who feel like maybe they'd feel better if they were at home in bed. Maybe they feel that bad. We don't, I don't know. Well, Lord, you're the one who consoles, who comforts, who teaches, who strengthens. And Lord, give us a mind that's clear. And Lord, we will love you more 
as we look at the reality of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do ask now, you will open our eyes that we'll see wonderful things from your law. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The realities. December the 7th, 1941. It changed the world. Some of us have lived in that world our entire lives. It changed the world. For those who don't know, that was Pearl Harbor. Then there was 1945, the summer of 1945. Fathers, brothers, husbands came home from World War II. I have some memories. It was a joyful time, a joyful time. Around the world, actually, especially in these United States. And then there was November the 22nd, 1963. Oh my, a shock, grief, a nation grieved. You, it's hard to get the feel for it by just reading about it and hearing about it. But to have felt it and have been there, it was a grief that swept through this nation like we had not experienced before. And then there was September the 11th, 2001. Well, this was a time that certainly shocked us as we saw the Twin Towers collapse. People leaping from upper stories, preferring to let the streets be their death rather than fire. Shock and fear captured the nation. We haven't been the same since. And then there was, not to have neglected it, but to remember it, November the 9th, 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It was a time of, it gave hope to the world temporarily that maybe we're into the dawn of a better age. You see these collect, oh, these, this is reality, these moments. And they brought up different experiences emotionally and mentally from grief and joy. But I will go to this and not to minimize any of this, not in the least. But in comparison to the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ, these are as leaves blown down the street by the wind in terms of the impact that will have upon this world, the second coming of Christ. Let's get some background. Come with me. You're going to look at a map. And if you will focus on the map, and if you will pick up a few things I say on this map, it's... We're not going to linger long here. Come with me to the plain of Esdrelon. You would have to go to the top of this map, and if you follow it up, it's just the, what you're looking at is the land of Israel, a portion of it. Just to the, <coughs> off the screen to the top would be the plain of Esdrelon. I've been there, and <coughs> it's uh, quite a view. I stood up on the cliff, was just outside the city of Nazareth, 
where Jesus interestingly would have run and played and thought and contemplated. Looking down on this great open plain, a theater, shaped like an arrow pointing down to the northwest, the tip facing that direction. Many battles have been fought there on the plain of Ezreland. You perhaps have heard the city Megiddo. And Megiddo is placed down to the southern part of this, the southern side of this arrow, this plain. And it is at that point where this great road that ran from Asia down through the, the land, down through Africa, was located, Megiddo. And there's a hill there. It's called Har, Har Megiddo. Harmageddon, where it gets its name. It was Napoleon Bonaparte who stood and looked. I don't know if he stood there by the city of Nazareth or from another viewpoint. He said, this is a theater for a battle for all the armies of the world to gather in this spot. It has eight exits in and out. It's situated Topographically, geographically, it's located in a place where our armies would gather. And this, if you follow down the map, just let your eye run down and you see where the Mount of Olives is. And then you go on further down the map and you will see this, the Dead Sea. And it trails in the map, trails off there. And you've got a distance of the land from up above the plain of Esdraelon down to the tip of the Red Sea, Dead Sea, into what is Edom. And that is approximately 175 miles. Some of these things sticking in your mind. Well, let me say just a word or two with regard to this plain of Esdraelon and a passage that I just read. Uh, Another I left out, which is in chapter 16 of Revelation 14 through 16, which mentions Armageddon. And where the armies of the world will gather at the end of the great tribulation. I'm convinced that the sequence of events facing us in the future, we do not know when, but we look to the rapture where Christ comes to receive his church and takes us up to be with him. And then those in the graves will be brought out of the graves and they will receive their resurrection bodies, and they will come up to be with the Lord. I do not think that the description that I've read to you in Revelation 19 is a description of that rapture. I have friends, friends in the Lord, brothers and sisters in Christ, who wish to have the meeting of the Lord at the end of the tribulation, at that point when Christ returns. I'm not here to debate the pros and cons of all that. But I'm giving to you what I hope will be a helpful understanding of the sequence and where this second coming description in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, this comes as the armies, it comes in the occasion, on the occasion of when the armies of the world from the east, from the north, from the west and the south, they will converge. The Arab states will be converged in unity those armies out from the east in China and in Afghanistan or certainly in Iran and the areas surrounding Israel, armies from that direction 
and even armies up from the, up from the north. And these armies will con be converging for battle. The movement of this battle will be toward Jerusalem. For it is the intention of these armies, ultimately under the, under the authority of and direction of Satan himself. He's been cast out of heaven by that time, out of the heavens, I should say. He's been cast out of heaven, but out of the heavens and down to earth. And he's seeking to plant his flag of ownership finally and fully on this earth. And these armies are at his disposal for the purpose of destroying Israel, and destroying the city of Jerusalem, to wipe Israel off the face of the map. This would be a very important coup for Satan to achieve. For in eliminating Israel, none of the promises that God gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and to Israel in the new covenant complete to complete its fulfillment, they couldn't be fulfilled. Israel would be wiped out. So that is the intention. Zechariah in chapter 13 and chapter 14 describe this. You can see that the, the tapestry here is just too much to take in all at one time, but let's just visit it briefly. That what will happen is that these armies coming in and converging upon Jerusalem and seeking to destroy Israel, two-thirds of Israel will be destroyed, and the Mount of Olives will be split open from east to west. It will be split north and south, I should say, and that provides a convenient exit out of the city and for many of the Jews to escape out into the wilderness. It looks like it's too late. It looks like this is going to be the a victory for Satan. And then, and then, at the right moment, is where we are in Revelation 19 and verses 11 and following, is that the Lord Jesus Christ splits open the skies and comes with his armies and comes to settle the whole conflict between the angelic world and himself. It will be a resolution of the angelic conflict. It will be a defeat of the enemies of God. The chosen of nation of Israel will be saved. And with this coming to an end, at the end of the tribulation, the Lord Jesus Christ comes and brings his presence to this earth. Now before we get into the passage and I walk you through it, I want to keep you alert to something. You know what hermeneutics is? No, it's, it's not Herman. It's hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting the Bible. You do this every time you read the scripture. You may be good at it. You may not know you're doing it. You may not be so good at it. But you are doing some kind of interpretation. You're making conclusions based upon, hopefully, based upon context, based upon the text of the word, based upon the larger, the, what they call the faith analogy, you're comparing scripture with scripture and other factors. So you come across this kind of language, and I have to say this up front, when we go into a book like Revelation, and we come to the second coming, and then we immediately are finding Christ riding into this world on the back of a white horse, and you think, wait a minute, is that really the way he's gonna come? And we find a, a metal sword coming out of his mouth. Is that what we'll be seeing? A sword coming out of his mouth? We have symbols. You know, the scripture is all is of it is interpreted literally. 
Don't fall into the trap that you can't take the Bible literally. Quite frankly, one who says that, they really don't, to put it mildly, don't know enough. How else do you interpret human language? Literally. Now, there is plain literal language and there is figurative literal language. But it's all literal. It takes you to an objective subject or meaning in whatever is being said. It's not codified so that it's just mysterious and you don't know what it is and you need some kind of special guru to explain it. No, the Bible, and this takes me to another, I'm off just a little bit from where I'm going, but say, hear me. You know, you know what perspicuity is? Perspicuity, to be perspicuous, means clear. The Bible was written with perspicuity, with clarity. It's written so we could understand it. You don't have to go to seminary to understand the Bible. No, it can help you with the languages. Yeah, there's some values, some advantages. But coming back to hermeneutics and perspicuity, that we have symbols that are used. And symbols are important. We live by them every day, <laughs> more than we realize. They're all over the dashboard of your, in your automobile and road signs and everywhere about us. Symbols are symbols. They're not reality. But that doesn't mean that they evaporate reality. No. That what symbols do, and I have a friend who's, who's put it this way, that what symbols do is that they, throw, they are used to throw a lot of truth at us quickly, don't they? That happens just in a nanosecond with some symbols. So we have those, but just understand that because they are symbols, and this is apocalyptic literature, this doesn't mean that it's like an Alice in Wonderland experience. No, it's to be understood. With that said, it took me a little while to get there, but we're there. Now, you with me? Look and follow. If you have the bulletin, you've got some kind of guidance there. Let's consider how this unfolds in this description of the greatest of all realities that is facing us on this planet. When he, I, I think maybe the best handle to get on this opening section, verses 13 through 16, would be to simply say that Jesus Christ, the conqueror, comes in a startling triumph. It's not mistaken. It's not vague. It's not off-center. It's not make-believe. It takes place, and notice this is very important in the text, there are names that are associated with the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Names. These tell us a lot. They're loaded. What's the first one? He's faithful and true. You know what that communicates? If you've come out of the Old Testament, you know that it means that he keeps all his promises. He will do what he says he is going to do. We're really in the section which is to be understood as the climax of the entire Bible, right here. And Jesus Christ is the only one who has done the will of God perfectly. He lived his life perfectly. That's why we can, that's why we can have the hope that we can be forgiven our sin and have the righteousness that's required to go into God's heaven is because Jesus Christ was that perfect one whose righteousness can be put onto our account so that we can go into God's heaven. Get that? Come back to this point. What he's saying here, what's in, 
implied here in this faithful and true statement is that this is in contrast to something. Now, this is where to have gone through the book of Revelation, you might have been a little better loaded for this statement. But this is said because there are those who are not faithful and not true. And you know who that is? That's the world system in which we live. Satan is the God of this world is not faithful and not true and his whole the entirety of his strategy is based upon a lie and immediately we're told he who is faithful and true you see evil is bound up in a lie if you want to sit around a table and talk with some friends about how much lying pervades our our world you could be there all night talking about all of the possibilities. It's everywhere. Lying, lying, lying. Not facing up to the truth. We want to substitute other so-called absolutes in the place of the truth. Right now, it has become race, which has, pre which has uh, sub from the substitute for truth. Race is the basis by which you determine what is right and wrong and so forth. But it can be other things as well. It can be sexuality, one's own identity. But it's truth, it's truth, it's truth. And he who is faithful and true. And Satan depends on the lie to advance his plan. He's done it since he came into the garden to Eve. And what did he do? He lied immediately. And Adam and Eve fell for it. And you can just follow his tracks right on through the scriptures and see lying, 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 counterfeits, deception, all the way through. And in each generation, it seems to be somewhat repackaged a little bit so you can think, well, that may not have been true, but this is true. I don't have time to go off into all those possibilities, but someone has said that lying is the slip, is to slip the noose of accountability. It is the way to avoid reality. Well, we're looking at the reality of the second coming. And Jesus is trustworthy in fulfilling his promises. I reread Matthew, a good bit of it, Matthew 24 this morning, which just fits. I mean, it, this passage stands on the shoulders of what Jesus said in that place. We don't have time to linger and go there at all, but Jesus then describes his coming in, in great detail. Then we have another title that comes up in this passage. Not only faithful and true, he keeps his promises, but he's called the Word of God. You now John, the Apostle John has an affinity for this because you know in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him. Well, he was the word of God. He, Jesus Christ, the word of God. What is that? He is the full expression of God. That's what the word is. That, he took this, takes this as his name. He's the full expression of God. And by this, you can see standing upon the shoulders of the fact that he is faithful and true, that he is all that God has to say. He is the full mind of God revealed in human flesh. He is nothing less than full deity, fully so, and expressed in terms of this logos of God, the word of God. So, now, if I can uh, just pause 
sort of a pause. Does Jesus really come here, since we're looking at these verses 11, 12, and 13, is he going to come on a white horse? Well, I kind of like the idea, you know, high old silver. <laughs> Some of us grew up with that, and that just said everything we needed to know. But then we had Lord of the Rings. It was a Gandalf who came coming in, of all people, but he's supposed to have been some right coming in on the white horse. Well, this comes out of first century, um, comes out of Roman culture, Roman, Roman celebration when the, the armies came into Rome after victories on the battlefields. The, the victorious general would be where? Out front on a white horse. And then all the, the booty and the captives would be coming, following in his train. But it would be with great pomp and circumstance that he would come. So the white horse is clear in its symbolism, but what did I say about symbols? They're not reality, but they point us to what is reality. It says that Jesus Christ is going to come triumphantly. He's coming as a conqueror. And you know what else? I think I'm convinced. I know because I've been in Zechariah chapter 9. And I know what it says with regard to the prophecy that Jesus would come into Jerusalem on that triumphal entry on the fold of a donkey. Well, you say those donkeys with those little short steps they take. And then you compare that to this mighty steed, this stallion, this white horse. That's not inferiority so much as it is purposely in contrast that Jesus Christ is coming the second time, not in the manner in which he came the first time. I want to chase that a little further later on. But it's in contrast. That's I think, is why it's placed here. And so that's the point. And then it says his eyes are a flame of fire. We have, uh, if you said this or heard it said, I thought there was something about his eyes. It looked like he was looking right through you. Okay, that's a human kind of configuration, but this is a symbol of the fact that he sees with blazing thoroughness and sees right through us and sees everything. And nothing misses his vision. It's a way of describing him in his omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence. Flaming eyes seeing what he needs to see. This is the real thing here, folks. This is not any partial judgment. But now we have another name, though. Let's come back to this road of names here. Faithful and true. Word of God, the full expression of God. And then it says, we have to slip on down to verse 16, if you'll look at that, where he is referred to as the Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords. What's this? This terminology has roots in the Old Testament. Hebrew is a little short on adjectives. That's just the way the language works. And so it uses these uh, literary devices like this, king of kings. It could have piled up a bunch of adjectives. But instead, it is saying he's the highest of all kings. He's superior to all kings. He's superior to all, all lords. There is nothing in officialdom in this world that comes near rivaling the command and the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. So here he's coming. And then this comes back to the fact in contrast to the first coming. How was he seen? Remember what John the Baptist said? 
when he saw Jesus coming to him early on in the Gospel of John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. Wonderful picture. But how is he coming now? He's not coming in this scene as a lamb. He's not coming as this meek and mild Jesus. I think maybe this is the place to park it and say something about this. This is a challenge that comes up here because there's a challenge which critics of the Bible want to bring to us. You've heard different forms of it. I'm sure you've encountered it. That what we have in the New Testament, we have Jesus who, do, who does what things? Why, he comes to a wedding and he turns water into wine. He's sensitive to social embarrassments and difficulties. He sees people who can't see and have never seen and he touches them and they can see for the first time. He comes across a, a funeral entourage and there is a woman whose son is dead. And what does he do? He raises that son. He goes to the tomb of Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come forth. And he heals the lepers. He speaks and he's gentle and kind. Come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, for I'm meek and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for yourself. That's a true picture of Jesus Christ, and we revel in it, do we not? And do we not find comfort in the way our Lord worked, moved among people and the way he spoke? He could speak so strongly and straightforwardly, and at the same time, he could speak so comfortingly, and he could do wonderful things for people that just leave us in tears. And we watch the reenactments of this in productions and Hollywood productions. And you can't help but get caught up into a recreation of this emotionally and say, this is Jesus. This is wonderful. And it is. It is. But now it's a different picture. And skeptics have brought attention to this. They say, say something's out of kilter here. Something's wrong. Look what he does. Look how he's described. He's, here is a military leader. He's got crowns on his head. He's on this white horse. It's a war that he is initiating. Do you see that in the opening verse? Justice and war. We're going to come to that word justice in a moment. And so their physical death occurs immediately on the earth as a result of Christ splitting the heavens and coming to the earth. Because they've gathered to make war against him. He's not coming to people who are, uh, who are soft and tender and open and malleable and want to believe. No, he's coming now because his word is he's going to fulfill his promise to come and make war on those who make war on him. So here's the answer to the skeptic's problem. You notice the language used here? If you let your eye roll down the text, it says that he says garments dipped in blood. What is that? This is, I don't think this is referring to his, the blood shed on the cross. That's not the point here. This is a symbol of what's about to take place. He is seen with blood-splattered garments. It's the picture as a result of this sword, his word, that's what the sword symbolizes. It doesn't come with a heavy metal sword hanging off its lips. It's describing a real scene. What we will see is not the sword, but what we will see is Jesus speaking the word, and this word becomes laser-like, as if we, compare, we could compare it to such, and he comes and it meets his enemies and shoom, lays them low. Thousands die, thousands die. Go back to Armageddon. I haven't forgotten that opening scene. 
because he comes and initiates, he takes this com- takes command and takes and challenges those who are his enemies because what Satan has is the world, he thinks, at his fingertips with all of its armies. And he has the Antichrist and the false prophet. He has them there ready to do his bidding and they'll be taken at that moment when he comes in Jesus Christ. He throws them into the lake of fire. So this is some serious warfare that's going on here is what he's describing. And so this robe dipped in blood, it's a symbol of what's about to take place. Bloodshed is about to happen. Now, you remember a little earlier on, I said we need to go to Isaiah 63. Okay, for those who have short-term memory challenges, all right, here we are, this ought to help. Go with me, this is the only time we'll be able to go to another passage for the sake of time, but we've got to do this with this Isaiah passage. Isaiah 63, and I want to show you something. Well, the language, the thought, and the, the experience and the reality of what is happening here is described in Isaiah 63 and verses 1 to 4. So if you keep that place open over the, to Revelation. And now look at Isaiah 63. What you're going to see take place here is an interaction. You're going to see Israel say something. You're going to see the Messiah say something. You're going to have the, uh, Israel say something else and then the, then the Messiah. All right, I'll show you. Follow. I'm going to read it. You're looking at it? All right, if you're not looking at the text, you've, you've got to fight a real battle of daydreamings here, so look at it. Who is this who comes from Edom? Israel is speaking here. With garments of glowing colors from Basra, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. That's Israel asking this question. Now look at the Messiah. The Messiah answers. Follow it. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And then Israel. Israel. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads the wine in the winepress. Then Messiah, I have trodden the wine uh, trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their blood, lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and in my year of redemption, my year of redemption has come. That's the picture. That's the story. That's the reality. All right. Now you're free to go back to Revelation in chapter 19 and look at what he carries on here. We have another phase of this. All of that was gathered around the conquering, triumphal coming of Christ to engage in war with his enemies. Now, notice in verse 14, the armies of heaven will accompany Christ at his second coming. You get in on this if you know Jesus Christ. Here's how. Look at it. We actually have two companies, I think, involved in this, where there's some dispute among interpreters, but I think this best satisfies the various texts. And Mark, in chapter 8, verse 38, says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I think angels are in this. Will come 
by the thousands, tens of thousands. My imagination is just too puny. <laughs> but it's going to be glorious for all the world to see. This is a worldwide viewing experience. But I also think that what's involved here is the fact that the church of God comes with him. Now, there's a little something of a skirmish between fellow believers uh, with regard to this, because if you believe in a post-tribulational rapture of the church, post-tribism, then you would see this as when the rapture takes place and they go up and with Jesus and they come down. Pre-tribulationists who believe that Jesus comes before the seven years of tribulation say that this fits into that sequence, that here we see them coming, the church coming with Jesus Christ to this. I'm not here to debate this, simply to say what we do have here is the obvious, that he comes with these armies. And if you're ridden a horse, I'm hopeful now because in reading this passage, I've been, I've been on a few horses. And I can say overall it's not been that enjoyable. Because uh, a horse is big, is dangerous, and stupid. And a horse knows what he wants to do and will do it. I must stay off that. I'm thinking of episodes. I will tell you this. We come with Jesus Christ and these pictures of the horse, the picture of the horses. Also in a triumphant group. Triumph, triumph, triumph. Justice is being done. This is important. All right, let's get to that. Now notice this third movement here I've sketched for you. That the sword that he wields and the opposition he faces, notice, we don't need to linger it. I've already gone by it already. But I want you to notice this in verses 15 through 16. And this comes out vividly in Revelation chapter 13. That there's the beast, the Antichrist. He's the great world leader of the last days. He's the dictator of the planet who is managed by his uh, charisma and his gifts. It's the man the world is looking for and waiting on. Could we not have someone who could come forward in this world's mess and be strong and lead us into what could be the utopia that we all long for? Yeah, there'll come one. I have no idea where he is. And Christians in the church, they've fallen over themselves trying to make predictions. Uh, was it, uh, uh, who was it? Uh, was it the Kaiser, World War I? Uh, was it Mussolini? Was it Hitler? Oh, you just can go right down the line. Books get written. Here he is. We don't know. But he's the one who the Lord will set his sights on. And then there's this false prophet. The false prophet is the religious department. He's the, pro he's the promoter. The false prophet, he's the one who, he gives credibility to the dictator. He is able to do things magically with his words and perhaps in some, some counterfeit miracles. He's able <coughs> to woo people and impress them. And <clears throat> so he's the sort of the, the press agent. You don't notice how press agents work. The, the president can say something that's totally a lie and a contradictory, but by the time the press agent gets through, yeah, now that's okay, yeah, I got it, I got it, that's good. Well, here is the ultimate press agent for Satan. And he will be in the sights of Jesus Christ. And then the kings of the earth and their armies are also set in the sights of Christ. <coughs> the kings of the earth, they're allies of the beast and the armies that are converging on Jerusalem. And it looks like it's the end. And Jesus Christ comes. 
I can't help but tell this story again. I'll make it very brief. I had a moment where I thought <laughs> something happened. I was out running around the city, old city walls of Jerusalem. And this was back in 81. And I was out for my morning run. It was an eerie morning. This was, I think, in January. And you have an interesting set of circumstances um, in the weather. And you have a rain cloud. And down in the south there, you can see the sea of the Dead Sea. And it's bright down in there. But you've got this rain cloud. And it just it puts off kind of an eerie glow, orangish, orangish yellow glow. And so I come around the corner of the of the the old city and about that time boom thunder and lightning struck us oh lord what is this is this where i will be when it happens it didn't it didn't it was just it was a, a meteorological phenomena for that moment in that place all right excuse me for that aside let's go let's look now to this conclusion of this verses 11 and 15 the victory that the king of kings wins. There is an immediate, there is an immediate victory that he wins. We can gather it under three words. Notice them. One, he will judge. It's in verse, in verse 11. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. He will be the king of kings. There'll be other kings who will report to him. What we have here is the inauguration of the kingdom of God the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And he's beginning to get everything set in order. He has opposition. He takes care of that. He will have those who will serve him and will come forward. <clears throat> and this gets into that magnificent and rich truth area of rewards. And who will, you know, remember the parable Jesus gave on occasion and said those who will be rewarded, and he put it in terms of ruling over the numbers of cities. You may have a city. If there's been faithfulness and you wonder if justice is ever going to be accomplished, you wonder why you've been through sickness and hardships and pain and suffering and you lost this, you lost that. Jesus Christ knows our record and he is going to see and reward, he sees and will reward faithfulness. It may be the, these kings and lords that is people of various, various levels of responsibility come forward and are under the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this is the Son of Man, Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. There'll be rewards, opportunities to serve in the kingdom. Oh, magnificent. Oh, let your imagination play with this. Don't let your imagination take you off into the shallows of depression and feel self-pity. Yes, it looks like the world's going to hell in a handbasket, but don't let that dominate your thought processes. All right, we're in the right place. Look, we've got two other things here moving along. He will subdue. He will subdue. I certainly can only give you a side a reference, but not to minimize the fact Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 are absolutely superlative here. I hope you've read them. And if you're rusty on them, just make a little note. See Psalm 110 and Psalm 2. For they describe this process of subduing. Because Jesus is there spoken of as coming with this rod. You know what the rod does? The rod demands obedience and compliance with his authority. That's what it does. And what he's going to do, the rod of his strength. 
This is what Psalm 110 in verse 2 says, just a piece of it. The Lord will send the rod of your strength out of Zion and rule in the midst of your enemies. So Jesus will have opposition opening up in this kingdom on earth, but he's going to be able to handle it. No one is able to. He doesn't need anyone to cover his back. He's got it covered completely. And then thirdly, he will rule. This is where Isaiah 2, this is another one. Isn't it important to know the Old Testament? How can a preacher tell people that we can be unhinged from the Old Testament? I, excuse me, I just, well, come back. Uh, why can you say that? The Old Testament is, is what Jesus just marinated his mind in this, and it comes out in his fulfillment of these prophecies. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. And these words here, um, they will break, they take their swords and, and break and and turn them into plowshares, you know, that language. Am I coming through on that? Oh, and you know where that's located? They actually have part of that Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. They have it emblazoned on the United Nations building in New York. <laughs> Do they not know? Because they're the ones who will be gathered together and already are in their own ways in counterfeit and lies and opposition and seeking to create a utopia on this planet and God's not in the picture. Well, God straightens all that out and this is where he will rule, it says, with that rod and he will, the ultimate control. I must conclude. Let's come back to this fact of the reality of the second coming. I want to frame my concluding statements with something. We need some takeouts here. I've preached on the second coming umpteen times in 60 plus years. And I've heard it preached umpteen times. And I come to this conclusion. I have come to this conclusion. I want to be sure I've got a good takeout on this. All right, what, okay, what do we do? Number one, the reality of the second coming prohibits gloating. You know what gloating is? Yeah, that's what that football team does when they win and they come out and they want to, you know, do all those gyrations and all that, uh, uh, all those acrobatics and they want to gloat and they go over to the, uh, to go over to the, to the, the opposition's crowd, you know, and whatever takes place. No, no, we don't gloat. Is that the God of the Old Testament, understand this, we get it, let's get a frame around this. Someone put it this way. This is a quote. All of God's acts of judgment in the Old Testament, the flood, Babel, the destruction of pagan nations for their abominations, including child sacrifice and barbaric tactics in war, are minor tremors in comparison to the great earthquake of Revelation 14. When one like a son of man swings his sickle, harvests the grapes, throws them into the wine press of God's wrath and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles up to four feet for a distance of all the way from the plain of Azrelin all the way down through and below the Dead Sea. That length of the land is, is just bloodshed everywhere. Now, I say don't gloat. We could say, yes, they're going to get theirs. They're going to get all these people who've got their fist in the face of God and this world in its, in its audacity and its arrogance and strutting about with the, we're going to save the planet. We're going to save the planet. Come on, give us more money. We'll save the planet. Oh, on and on and on and on. And then, you, well, we can't chase all those down. But don't gloat. Here, let me add this. The reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ 
should be lived with grace and humility. Grace and humility. You know, the Lord says in Ezekiel 18, 23, he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. This is not the time to dance on the grave of those who will come. That's not why the second coming passage is given, to celebrate, ah, they get theirs. No. When you read the prophecy of the Old Testament, you cannot help but notice that though they have on their lips, they have judgment, but in their eyes, they have tears. You just read through, look at Jeremiah, he's an example. And you know, God had to teach Jonah this lesson, didn't you remember that? Jonah was wanting the Assyrians. He wanted to dance on their grave. And the Lord said, Jonah, you want these people to be killed. Will you look out there at that city? And he even ends on, it's always often seemed to people to be kind of a, a anticlimactic. Even the cattle are there. <laughs> God's saying, Jonah, I care for the cattle. And you are wanting these, these Assyrians to be wiped out so you can celebrate Lesson learned. Lesson should be learned. So the Christian then ought to pay attention. Let me expand it just briefly. It's important. The Christian pays attention to Revelation. You can't argue with something. First of all, this is righteous violence that takes place here, folks. Righteous violence. And it's bringing evil to a final end. That is for sure. Don't try to soften that mute it in any way. But nowhere in the book of Revelation are human beings invited to participate in this violence. I'm indebted to Christopher Watkin for a good discussion of this in his book on the critique of the Bible and applying it. It's a very helpful thought. This is where we could, if we had time to unpack the whole issue of pacifism, which is quite, in many circles, is, is seems to be the alternative to, if we're going to defeat evil, we've got to be passive, pacifist about it. The idea that badness can be dealt with without the violence of war is fiction. Fiction. Now, God has set up certain directions, I believe in scripture, for what we would know as legitimate warfare. Nations to protect themselves and police force to protect people. He has put in place some means of restraining evil. That's clear. However, be careful. But pacifism is naive. It's naive. You know, we get it from Gandhi. And the civil rights movement picked it up. And you know why it worked, by the way? It worked because there was a culture that still had an imprint upon it of biblical Christianity still lingering, a lingering conscience that made it respond. This is why it worked in India with Gandhi. It's because the British had that lingering conscience of biblical world of biblical worldview. You just try try it in Putin's Russia, okay? Try it in Xi Jinping. Try it in his China. Go ahead. Uh, try it in Iran. Just to remind us, pacifism is not the answer. It doesn't take into account the nature of evil. And it plays into the hands of human beings who think that human nature is basically good. Oh, if you want to see a politician that you should run from immediately, is his belief he or she believes that human nature is basically good. That person is dangerous. And we've got some people like that about today. All right. I won't go further, but I would add this. 
it's just a satellite to this point. Do you know that um, this, the reality, I'll put it in this way, the reality of the second coming, when it is rejected or ignored, gives bitter, awful consequences. Here's how. The Bible picture of final judgment means that justice will be exhaustively done by God in the end and does so and does not have to be exhaustively done by us right now. That's from Christopher Watkin. Did you get that? Did you get that? Let me say it again. I'll put it in my words. That when we look at the second coming of Christ, we see that evil will be dealt with exhaustively, thoroughly, completely. Everything will be taken care of. Now, let's take this point a little bit further. What if you do not believe in this ultimate accountability of the reality of the second coming of Christ, that God exists and will and demands righteousness and will judge all unrighteousness? You don't, let's say you discard that. You don't believe it. You know what you do? Here's what you do. And there are abundant uh, examples of this. You will then think that if there's going to be justice, then evil has to be put away exhaustively, exhaustively by us here on earth. You wonder, you wonder why this happens in totalitarian regimes. Here, listen to this. You may not know this author, this authoress, but she's written, she's written so lucidly on this. Hannah Arendt, A-R-E-N-D-T. Take note of that. Listen to what she said. This is important. I am perfectly sure that the whole totalitarian catastrophe would not have happened, she's referring to the 20th century and everything that it gave to the world in its evil, that the whole totalitarian catastrophe would not have happened if people still had believed in God or in hell, rather, that is, if there still were ultimates. What she's saying, if there was some semblance of belief in ultimate accountability and justice, would you seek to go out and to get exhaustive justice done yourself? That's what's happening in our world right now. And you look at it and you say, I feel like I'm looking into the very mouth of hell. You are. Because that view that justice cannot be, has to be carried out exhaustively is a satanic deception and lie. God's going to deal with it. And I have to say this poorly. Therefore, Christians should not seek to participate in only what God can do, and that is using violence to bring about the exhaustive treatment, a judgment against evil. That is why Christian militias and, and this, uh, this macho kind of Christianity, macho faco that we're going to take up arms and we're going to do this and we need to take back, and you begin into this militaristic talk, and Christians just hold your horses no pun intended, that what the Lord Jesus Christ will do will be able to take care of it. I want to conclude one final statement. The reality of the second coming means that our lives should be about telling the world about Jesus Christ. What I would hope that would happen in this assembly, in this church, this congregation, in this coming year, the speaker included, that we will take more seriously this ultimate ultimate encounter with, with reality, the second coming, and this justice that is going to be done and the rule of Christ and the subduing of all of his enemies. I don't want to gloat. Oh, we're going to win. Yeah. 
hey, hey, goodbye, you know, that kind of stuff. No, but those who don't know Jesus Christ. Could you do this with me? Could you pray that God would use you this year in 2024 to make you more alert to opportunities to share Christ with those around you? I don't want to give you any, any, kind, of, uh, any kind of goals or something. That, that's between you and God. You have to be careful about making vows to God. He, has, he holds us to them. <laughs> so to say, Lord, I just need to be more alert to the unsaved people in the circumference of life that you've given to me. It can come in strange ways. I had one this past week. It is not, uh, I don't say this to make much of myself, not at all. But someone wanted me to do a funeral this week, and I have not seen this family in 38 years. And got a call, and we'll go to the details. I had the opportunity to stand before people on Thursday to give the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preach in Revelation 22. Okay, so preachers can get those opportunities. You get opportunities that I couldn't have. You've met people, you know people, you work alongside people. Somebody may come out of your past that you've just not, even, not remembered at all. I don't know. But could we do that? Say, Lord, I don't know how you surprise me and give me the sense to see what's happening and be ready with the gospel. Have some good gospel tracks. Have a little gospel of John. Just be ready with something. Maybe my presence and love and that this unsaved person will see that I care about them. I just care about them. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for this, this vivid, vivid description. But Lord, you've left a lot of things out. Indeed, you have. And so, Lord, we pray now that what you've left out, we know it's for our good, but what you've given us is for our edification. So grant us, Lord, the zeal, the boldness we need to be more effective in our witness in 2024 as we look, anticipate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.